Good morning, family. Can we stand and sing together? Welcome to the gathering. Fellowship Mosaic family, it's good to see you all. Hey, Michael. Um, we hope that your souls are filled tonight by the Holy Spirit. We hope that he meets with you, that he encourages you toward love and toward unity with one another and with him. Will you read this scripture out loud with me before we sing together? I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King and triumphs of His grace. If eloquence I could display and every Sweet. 
declare that with a lot of praise and joy, confidence in this space, in this room tonight. You are great. You are so great. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing how great you are. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King, our Redeemer, how great you are. Captivate us by your spirit, help us to see you more clearly, to follow you with more conviction and to love you with more passion tonight. We love you, we love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. You can amen. take a seat. Thank you, Mosaic. Welcome, welcome. What a gift, isn't it such a gift to get to come together every Saturday night and praise our God together? Hey, if you are here for the first time tonight, welcome. Thank you for choosing to worship with us. We are so glad that you are here. And we wanna get to know you. And we have a real practical way to kind of do that. Uh, if you go to our website at mosaicnwa.org slash I'm new, you can find out more information about Fellowship Mosaic. And you can give us a little bit of information about you so that we can get to know you better. We also want to know you face to face. So we have a booth in the foyer, our information booth that's in the middle of the foyer. We have people there who would love to meet you, answer any questions that you have, and help you know how to get connected here at Mosaic. All right, guys, I have something that I'm pretty excited about that I wanna share with you tonight. I am so grateful for our student ministries culture here at Fellowship Mosaic. And specifically what I'm talking about is we have students who are pursuing God, they're pursuing relationship with each other, and they have an incredible heart to serve and give back. Every Saturday night, we have students that are helping with babies, serving with preschoolers, they're leading our elementary kids in small groups, and it's just such a blessing to see. And another way that they're serving that I think is incredible is they are leading worship. And I don't know if everyone realizes that, but outside of our incredible worship that we get to be a part of in adult worship, we have two other services that are happening every Saturday night where live bands are leading our students and our kids, our middle school service and our elementary service upstairs. And these bands have some really faithful adults who are serving in them, but really, the majority of the leadership in those bands are students. And it's so cool. I encourage you, if you've got a kiddo in one of these ministries, to come worship with us sometime in one of those venues. I promise you will be blessed. Um, but I think that there are lots of students who probably have musical giftings and a desire to get involved and maybe they don't know how. So I'm gonna tell you tonight one way that they can get connected. We have a training that is coming up next weekend, October 9th, from 12 to three in the Student Center. This is a training that we call SELA that we do every fall. And it's such a great time because kids can bring their instruments, they get a chance to hop up on stage in a no pressure situation and see what it's like to sing or play with a band. 
So if you have a sixth through 12th grader that you think might be interested, I encourage you to go online, register them for Sela, and we would love to see them there on Saturday. Yes. <laughs> what, oh, I'm gonna throw this out there too. If you're an adult and you sing a little, or you've got a guitar that you used to play or played drums back in the day, and you feel like God's calling you into some kind of service in worship ministry, please come see me. I would love to talk to you about that and love to get you connected. You can talk to Scott, you can talk to Ryan, any of us, and we'd love to get you connected. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. So um, I wanna tell you about something, though, that is so exciting to me. Yes, our students are serving here every Saturday night, but that is not where it stops. I... It's amazing to me. These students are serving all week long. They are, some of them leading worship in their cell groups. They're leading out in their schools. Even just last night, we had a group of students who led worship and who led out in prayer at Joppa House of Prayer. So God is calling them into the community as well. And that is such a tremendous blessing and an exciting thing to be a part of. We as a church also have a wonderful opportunity to partner with what God is doing in our community with Loving Choices. You just saw a video about that organization and they are doing vital work, vital work. I, uh, my son last weekend grabbed this bottle. There are bottles out in the foyer that you can take home, fill up. This is our change from our kitchen change jar that he filled. And then we prayed over it as a family. And so I encourage you to grab a bottle, fill it up with a donation, and pray over that. Pray over what God is doing in and through Loving Choices. What a great honor to get to partner with them, isn't it? So I encourage you to do that. We're turning them in. Next week is our last week to turn them in. So grab one tonight on your way out. Mosaic, as we continue in worship, will you just... Close your eyes and take a deep breath. And just focus your heart, focus your mind on God. He meets us in this place, right where we are. God, thank you. Thank you for your empowering presence. Thank you that we get to gather together that we get to pause and contemplate the things that you have to speak to our hearts and that we get to exalt you. We love you, God. It's in your son's name I pray, amen. Sing glory, glory with us. Glory, glory. 
fear in me. Praise you, Father. Amen. My life is hidden beneath heaven's shadow. Your crimson flood covers me. God of 
Dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promises. Amen. My hope is built on nothing less. Then Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not trust 
You are good, you are God, you are Lord and King. Please help us to just revere you tonight as we lean into your truth, as we seek your wisdom, as we seek your guidance. As we come together under the authority of your word, Lord, help us to see you and to seek you. Thank you for being the cornerstone, Christ Jesus. Thank you. What a strong foundation you are. We love you. Jesus' name, the cornerstone, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. When we uh, first decided to teach First Timothy this fall, and they laid out all the different passages and the different dates for the schedule, I circled this night and thought, pity the fool that gets assigned this passage. Let me orient you a little bit to, to where we are before we step into what most people will agree is one of the most difficult, challenging, uh, confusing passages in this book, and maybe even the whole New Testament. We're in a section in this letter that Paul wrote Timothy. He has dealt with, he's addressed false teachers, people who are dividing up the church, and now he's stepped into a section where he's proposing order for the church. What, how should the church function? He, he treats the church like a household that, that needs to have a functioning order, a structure to it. And so he's giving structure. In fact, at the end of the section, in chapter three, he's gonna explain a little bit what he's up to. And it's relevant for tonight in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 14. Paul says, Although I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, who he's writing to, I'm writing to you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's our, our big topic how should the church behave? How should it conduct itself? How should the church do what it's set up to do? And in tonight's passage, we're particularly gonna look at the relationship between men and women and the roles that they're given and the behavior that they have in the body of the church. And I'll be honest with you. Um, when I have read this passage, I have squirmed inside with discomfort. There are things in this passage that make me want to just run away from it. And I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in another letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul wrote this. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now that tells me something about how I should approach the scripture, particularly when I come to a passage that makes me uncomfortable. A passage that, that makes me want to maybe rebel a little bit, maybe hide a little bit, maybe even be ashamed a little bit of what I find. This is God's word given for our health, for our life, given to show the church how to be the church. So even if it makes us uncomfortable, we can trust that what we find here is good. And so that, I think, is the lens that, that we have to take as we come to this passage in Scripture tonight. So I'm going to invite us to, to put those lenses on as we get started in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
We're picking up right where we left off last week. In fact, we're, we're taking one verse that we read last week because it really launches in to this next section. In 1 Timothy 2.8, we read, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, what, what Paul does here is he, he sets up particular instructions that he directs toward men and he directs toward women in the churches. And apparently he's responding to a, a, some problem behaviors he sees that are causing disruption. And what he's going to do is he's going to give a positive instruction and a negative rebuke or what not to do. So to the men, he says, I want you to pray lifting holy hands. Now, what, what Paul's concerned here is not with the particular instruction that you always have to lift your hands when you pray, okay? There were a lot of different ways, body postures that people would take when they prayed. Uh, lifting hands was one way to do it. Another way was to, to fall on your face. Um, another way would be on your knees. The point, the emphasis here is not on lifting hands. The emphasis is on holy hands. Why does Paul have to talk about them having holy hands? Because that's in contrast to what they've been doing, which is that they've been coming to the church to pray with anger and disputing, with arguments and fights, that the men are coming in with some kind of chip on their shoulder and even leveraging their prayer time to try to make a point and get a jab at their opponents. And so... When he says pray lifting clean hands, he's saying lifting your hands, hands that are cleansed from this kind of disruptive behavior. Get your eyes off of your own selfish motives and lift your eyes to God in prayer. And he's saying this is the particular problem that we seem to see happening is that men are getting angry and divisive and, and battling with each other. And so he rebukes them and says, quit being so selfish and turn your attention to God in prayer. And then he turns and says, now women, to the women I say, dress modestly. His exact words, he says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So what we're going to do now is we're going to inspect everyone here, and if there's an ounce of gold or pearl or any braided hair, we're going to have a moment of public church discipline. Yes? It's God's inspired word. Okay, well, we have to remember, and this is really important, Paul is speaking into a cultural moment, and we, we want to avoid two ditches. One we don't want to, on the one hand, assume that every cultural thing gets transferred one-to-one -to, -one to today. On the other hand, we don't want to assume that because it was a cultural moment, everything only applied to that culture and we can ignore it. There's a principle here that Paul is concerned with, and it's stated, I think, pretty clearly. He wants women to dress in modest, appropriate ways. Why? Okay, so what's going on when it describes, and we have all kinds of records about how people dressed in the ancient Greco-Roman culture. And what he describes 
follows two trends. One, it was the trend of the wealthy elite to try to show their status as higher than everyone else. That these elaborate hairstyles and the golden pearls were a way to signify to everyone, I am in a different class than you. Bow before me. The other thing that these styles would indicate is they would indicate a woman who is looking to hook up with a man. That it was a a promiscuous signal, almost akin to somebody going on a business trip, a married person going on a business trip and saying, I'm taking my wedding ring off and leaving it in the room before I go out tonight so that I can give the signal that I'm available. And so they're dressing in particularly showy and seductive ways to try to draw attention to themselves. Now, oftentimes when I've read passages like this, and I was processing this with my wife this week, and and she said she's had the same thought, the assumption that I've had is, okay, Paul's saying, don't dress to draw attention to yourself, so no clothing that is enhancing beauty at all. I mean, it's almost like the easy walkaway would be that everybody should just wear big, baggy brown cloaks all the time that completely cover them up. But there's a problem. The verb that Paul used to describe what they should do is the word adorn. Now, there's a word that just means get dressed, put on. That's not the word Paul uses. He says they should adorn themselves with appropriate clothing. That word adorn means to beautify. It means to accent the beauty that's there. Paul's not saying it is wrong to try to dress cutely. He's not saying it's wrong to want to wear nice clothes or clothes that look beautiful. What he's prohibiting is a kind of dress that will either have the purpose of elevating your status above the people around you or a kind of dress that is actively seductive, that is actively drawing attention in a sexually provocative way. Now, I want to say something here to the guys in the room. There has been a long trend, particularly in more conservative Christian circles, of telling women they have to dress in a conservative way so that men won't struggle with lust. Women, let me say this very explicitly. You are not responsible for what men do or do not do with their eyes and their minds. That's not on you, okay? In fact, in in the culture at this time, if you look at Ephesus, let's be honest, there were naked statues everywhere in the streets, okay? Men were going to see plenty of sexually provocative material, even if all of the women in the church dressed really conservatively. Men have to deal with their own temptation. Men have to deal with their own sin struggle. So what Paul is not doing here is saying, women, you need to make sure you're protecting the men from struggling. That's not the idea. That's their own struggle. What he's saying is don't be an active participant in that sin. Okay? Men, you're responsible for your sin struggle. Women, you're responsible for yours. And let's not go blaming it on each other. I think that's a really bad application of what's going on here. What he's saying, and I think the application to what he's saying to women is exactly the same as what he's saying to the men. 
in both of these situations, whether it's the fighting and the anger or whether it's the dressing in a way to draw your attention to yourself, both of them, remember the topic of conversation here is what happens when we gather to worship. And he's saying when you are coming into that room with a desire to make yourself known, your opinion known, or to draw attention to yourself, you're distracting from where we should be, which is having our eyes on God. So the counter to men's anger is prayer, and the counter to this showy, attention-drawing dressing is good deeds. He says, women, let yourself, let your beauty be adorned with acts of love and kindness. He says the, the marks that should happen in a church are that a church should be a place that is known for prayer and acts of love. Instead of a place that's known for a lot of bickering and fighting and a fashion runway competition of everybody trying to show off how well they can dress. So he's saying all of this stuff is getting in the way of the purpose of why we're gathering. So be mindful of it and put the attention where it ought to be. And then he moves forward. And in verse 11... He continues addressing specifically women. He says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Anybody feeling uncomfortable now? Hey, let's walk through this a little bit and try to understand what is the direction that Paul is, that the Holy Spirit is giving through Paul and how do we understand it for our church? So let's, let's begin with the command he gives. He starts by saying in his instruction that the, the command word is that women are supposed to learn. That in and of itself is actually a pretty revolutionary idea from the Jewish culture. In fact, there's an extra-biblical Jewish source from a rabbi, uh, this is going to be super offensive, so just brace yourself, who said, literally, it would be better to burn the Torah, burn God's law, than to teach it to a woman. Okay, that's the culture that was widespread in the ancient Near East at that time. And something revolutionary we see in the life of Jesus himself. Remember that whole story about Mary and Martha and their little debate? Where was Mary? At the feet of Jesus. Do you know what that spot is when you have a teacher and somebody sitting at their feet? That's the role of a disciple. And she is lifted up as this is exactly where she should be. Jesus is inviting Mary and lots of other women into the coveted role of discipleship under a rabbi. This is revolutionary stuff in Jewish culture. And so what Paul is affirming here is, hey, Women, you shouldn't be left outside of the instructing, instruction and the learning of activity of the church. You should be right in there learning. And then he puts some qualifications on it. He says they should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, um, anybody, any women a little triggered by that word, quietness? When you talk about what this word does and doesn't mean, okay? The word can mean silence, it can mean don't talk at all, but it also can refer to an attitude that is non-disruptive. And you've got to look at the context to figure out what that word is meaning. 
And you know what's incredibly helpful about this passage? Paul has used that exact word nine verses earlier. In fact, um, I don't have this on the screen, but if you want to look back up in your Bibles, when Paul is speaking to everyone about how they should pray, in verse two, they're praying for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and, what's the word? Quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. This idea of quiet here is not something he's uniquely telling women to be. This is, not men, this is not men be loud and talkative, women you sit in the corner and be quiet. That's not what's going on here. To be quiet is an attribute of all believers that is supposed to mark our lifestyle. The idea is, is that we are to be peaceful people. He's describing the order of the church and he's saying that as women are learning in the church, as they enter into this learning community of the church, they should do it in a way that is non-disruptive and honoring of the person who's teaching. Okay, so this is not women are silent in the church. One of the ways we know this is the New Testament is filled with examples of women speaking in church. In 1 Corinthians, Paul gives specific instructions for when women are prophesying in the church how they should do it. We have several examples of women having key speaking roles in the church. So this is not saying women be silent. This is describing the posture or attitude that learning should take place in. And it is to be non-disruptive and respectful of the teacher is the concept. I would compare it to, you know, we've all had this moment, right? Teacher walks into a classroom. Kids are being loud and rowdy. And she says, all right, all right, quiet down. It's time to get started. Is the teacher saying, I expect none of you to say a word for the next hour? Maybe, but probably not. What they're saying is the disruptive speech needs to come to an end so that we can now transition to speech that will help learning take place. So I think that's what Paul's saying here. I think that makes both, most sense of both the word and the context that it's happening in. So Paul then goes on from there. Let's continue. Let's go back a slide and stay, stay working in these verses. We've got a few more things we've got to look at. He goes on from there. And he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Okay, so again, we got to think, what does this teach and assume authority mean? Now, we are talking here within the household of God, the gathering, the official church gathering. What takes place when we get together? So this word teach has a very particular meaning. It doesn't refer to all teaching ever. It refers to the official teaching that's happening in the gathered church. Okay, so this is saying when the church gathers, Paul is reserving that teaching role for men in leadership. And he's saying this role, this particular function is reserved for men in leadership. So he's not permitting women to try to take that position away from the men it's been entrusted to. And not to assume authority. Now, it's interesting about that word authority. It's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. So it's, it's tough to figure out exactly how he's using it. It's not the only time it's used in Greek, so we can see other examples of it. But the idea seems to be in some range of trying to take authority away from somebody else. Take a leadership role away from somebody else. So this seems to be the, the, the instruction that Paul's giving. Women are to be full participants in the body. They're going to have lots of speaking roles, lots of voices, lots of ministry leadership roles, but particularly 
in this official teaching capacity of the church, when the church gathers that leadership role, he's reserving for men. And this is the instruction Paul gives to the church at Ephesus. So the question then becomes, what do we do with this as we apply it today? And broadly, there have been three options. One, ignore it, Paul is a chauvinist. We're gonna go ahead and scratch that one out right away because of the clear teaching that the scriptures are from God. And so we can't write this off as irrelevant and say Paul was just wrong if we follow the belief that the scriptures are our guide from the Lord. So that leaves us with two possibilities. The first of our options is to limit this to the first century. To say, Paul is speaking to a particular situation in Ephesus, and so his restriction here, that only men are to teach and have this role of leadership, is only for that church at that time. And it would not apply to any other church. Or, to understand this in some way as a universal guideline for the church that must be applied sensitively. And interpreters are split on which option to take. I've read some people that I really respect that take the first option and think this is limited to the first century. I've read some people I really respect that think there is a guideline here for all churches for all time. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about orthodoxy, doctrines that define the church that we have to unite around and those that we don't have to. This is not an issue that defines what it is to be a Christian. Good, Bible-believing, Jesus-following people disagree on this issue that are trying to be faithful to the scriptures, that are really trying to seek guidance from the Lord on how do we structure our church gatherings. So let's start by saying we can disagree with someone on how to read this text and still have fellowship in Jesus. We can partner with churches that disagree on how to apply this. And at the end of the day, as a church community, we are still responsible for trying to do our best to understand it and apply it faithfully. Okay, we don't get to say, because this is difficult, ignore it. How many parents have ever had a kid try that one on them? You tell them to clean their room before bed, the next morning the room's not clean, you say, what happened? I wasn't sure if you meant pick it up or vacuum it, so I didn't either. Does that work? Do you feel satisfied with that explanation, parents? And yet some people try to do that with the scriptures. They say, well, it could mean A or B, I'm not sure, so let's just chuck it. And I believe that if the scriptures are God-breathed, and useful for our instruction, we have a responsibility to do our best to try to understand them and try to be faithful in humility to say this is how we are going to obey this text in our community. And so I'm gonna tell you why we at Fellowship hold that the third option is true. There are a few things that I think make it difficult to say this is only limited to the church in Ephesus. The first is the context of all the instructions. In Verse eight, when Paul's speaking, he says, I want men where? What does he say? Everywhere. He doesn't say, I'm giving a special instruction for you in Ephesus. He says, men everywhere, here's how I want you to behave. And then he says, similarly, women, this is how I want you to behave. So the context at the beginning is Paul is giving instruction that seems to apply to all churches. And, and there's nowhere in here where we get a clear marker that he's saying something limited only to Ephesus. 
And so I, I'm, I'm looking for a clue in the text, anything in the passage that says this is only for that church. I, I can't find it. Secondly, Paul then goes on to ground why he gives that instruction in verse 13. And when he does this, he does not point to any cultural marker. He does not point to the specific situation happening in Ephesus. He goes back to Genesis 2 and 3. And the fact that he goes back to Genesis 3 to many people is evidence that Paul is pointing to something deeper than just what's happening in the first, first century Ephesian church. He says four. So here's the pattern, and this is a very consistent pattern. When there is a command, and then the word for, and then a bunch of indicative sentences, sentences that say what's happening, that is a pattern saying, here's a command, and here's the reason I'm giving that command. So let's look at Paul's reasons. Paul says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, does that argument seem a little obscure to anyone in here? There seem to be some, some lines in there that don't totally follow one from another. Let me give you some context of what the worldview was like in Ephesus at this time. Now, anytime we do this, we're, we're not on certain ground because we don't know for sure that this is the background that Paul's alluding to, but I think it might help give us some insight. In Ephesus, Ephesus was the home of one of the great wonders of the world. Many say the greatest wonder of the world. Does anybody know what it is? It's the Temple of Artemis. You see, Artemis was the patron deity of that city. They loved Artemis. In fact, so much so that when Paul first came to Ephesus and started preaching the gospel, a riot broke out because they thought he was disrespecting Artemis. And they started chanting that we are the home of Artemis the Great. Now, if, if you've uh, maybe not kept up with your Greek mythology, let me remind you a little bit about Artemis. She was the twin of Apollos. And according to the myth, she was born first. Now, in Greek mythology, when gods are born, they're not babies. They're instantly aware and their minds are fully developed. And she watches her mother writhe in agony for eight more days before her brother Apollos is born. And watching her mother go through labor, she makes a decision, I will never marry, I will never have children. So she becomes a picture of feminine independence that rejects Marital relations and childbearing. And she also has this, um, this role of leadership, even in being, seeing herself as the firstborn in front of Apollos. And because of her compassion on childbearing, she becomes the goddess they would look to as basically a divine midwife. When a woman was in childbirth, in pain, they would pray to Artemis to protect them. Now let's... Read this passage again with that potential background. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. I think what Paul is doing here is possibly saying, hey, the Artemis story 
where Artemis came first and her brother later, that's not the biblical story. In the biblical story, Adam came first and then Eve. And it's not as if the one who comes first is always of higher um, rank or something like that, right? Because if that were the case, animals would rule over us. Plants would rule over us. So I don't think there's a general rule being laid down here that it's always first and then second. But I think Paul is pointing to his understanding of Genesis 2. And what happens in Genesis 2 is he forms Adam and he gives Adam the responsibility to take care of the garden. And then he forms Eve to come alongside him. And take note of this. After the sin has taken place, when God comes in and he finds them hiding, who does he call out to give an account of what happened? He calls out Adam. He holds Adam accountable first for what happened. And so what Paul seems to be doing is saying that responsibility all the way back in the garden was first given to Adam and Eve came alongside that responsibility. And then he points to the, point, the, the, the fact that Eve experienced deception. She was the one deceived by the serpent. Now, what this is not saying, and this is a really bad teaching that's happened in the church that I would love to just blow up right now, it is not saying women are inherently more gullible. That is nowhere in Paul's argument that they are more prone to be deceived. He doesn't say women are deceived. He's talking about historically, this is what happened. Eve was the one that was deceived. I think what he's doing is saying you cannot get a narrative of female dominance from Adam and Eve, as if men are the ones that just wrecked everything. He goes, no, no, no. Now remember, if you're trying to create a narrative where women rise up over men, remember Eve was the one deceived. Now Adam sinned too, and in fact, in the New Testament, the specific situation of the fall of Adam and Eve is referenced four times, and guess who gets blamed? Guess who gets the, the brunt of the blame in those four occurrences? Two and two. Two times it talks about Adam's sin, two times it talks about Eve's sin. So who's responsible for the fall? Both of them, equally. You cannot pin responsibility one way or another here. But I think Paul is specifically pointing to this idea of women taking this role of leadership away from men to teach and lead. And he's saying that was not God's design. That was not God's original intent. And then he gets to what I, it might be the most confusing verse in the New Testament to me. Now, what does it mean that women will be saved through childbearing? Okay, first of all, I want to point something out. Most of you, if you have an NIV, you'll have a little footnote, and I think the footnote is important. It does not say women. It says she will be saved. Now, the interpreters of the NIV are trying to smooth this out, but I actually think that's significant. He's still talking about Eve here. Eve was deceived and was made a sinner. And she will be saved through childbearing. And then he applies it more broadly to all women, if women continue in faith, love, and holiness. So what's the problem here? Why, why is Paul speaking directly to this issue of salvation from sin, and then speaking to childbearing. There's a few options. The first is that childbearing is how women earn salvation. Let's go ahead and just strike a line straight through that one. That's absolutely not the case, okay? Paul's really clear, there, and the whole entire New Testament's really clear. There is no action we do to earn salvation. Faith in our Savior is the only way to salvation in Christ and before God. 
One is just dead wrong. The second one is that childbearing saves women from insignificance. This has been taught. That women, if you aren't happy with not having this leadership role, your place of significance is to go have kids. Let's put a strong line through that one. That's not true either. We know that, Here's one of the big reasons we know that. Paul, in multiple places, is going to prescribe singleness as one of the most significant choices you can make for the kingdom of God. He's going to say one of the best things you can do, and he says it's a gift. Not everybody has this gift and calling, but to choose to not get married, not pursue family for the sake of serving the kingdom is a prized place for both men and women. So Paul cannot be saying the path to significance before God is through childbearing. That goes against everything the rest of the New Testament says. Now, I had a strong desire to get to tonight and have landed my conviction on this verse, and I'm stuck between the last two. I cannot decide which one I think is it. One option, because he's referring specifically to Eve and he's following through Genesis 2 and 3, is that he was saying, uh, there's an issue later on in 1 Timothy, we'll find out the false teachers were actually forbidding marriage and childbearing. And so possibly what Paul is saying here is, hey, it was Eve's act of deception that led to sin. But afterwards, God made a little promise to Eve. He said, from your seed will come a savior. So this is not saying childbearing is how all women are saved. It's saying one particular act of childbearing led to salvation for all. The birth of a savior, Jesus. So possibly what Paul's saying here, hey, let's not swear off all childbearing as some horrible curse. Remember, God used that to bring about a savior. Another option, remember, in the Artemis myth, childbearing is this great struggle to avoid. And they would pray to Artemis to help them in childbearing. Another option is that Paul is saying, hey, you will be saved even through the pain of childbearing, God's faith will sustain you. It's not a promise that no one ever dies in childbearing, but it's a promise that you don't have to put off childbearing and marriage in order to be saved. Your salvation, I think what he might be saying, is going to be determined by what the second half of the verse says, faith and love and hope and modesty, that your trust in Jesus is what will save you even through the challenges of childbearing. So we don't have to swear that off as somehow opposed. I honestly don't know which of the two he's saying. I think both make good sense. I think his overall point here is that women should not, in an attempt, and I think we can see a cultural trend here today as well as in the ancient world, women should not swear off family for the sake of achieving status. You should not see family and pursuing marriage and children as an evil to keep you from achieving status. Somewhere, that is part of God's design for men and women together. That doesn't, but remember, he doesn't say that's God's design for every man and woman. There are, so, there are so many different stories, some that involve singleness, some that involve people being married and unable to have children and choosing to live their married life together that way. There's a lot of different stories. He's not saying that childbearing is a requirement. What he's saying is it shouldn't be sworn off as having no place in God's plan. So now, what do we do with this today? 
How do we begin to, to take these instructions that were certainly given to a particular time and a particular place and, and put them together in a way that can be a guiding principle, a guiding set of instructions for our church? Well, I think it's important that alongside what he says here in 1 Timothy, we remember the kinds of things Paul says in other places, most notably of which is in Galatians. Take a look at what Paul says about the relationship of men and women in Galatians chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Here's one of the beautiful things that happens in Christ. In the Old Covenant, in the, in the Hebrew Jewish faith, what was the mark of being God's people? It was circumcision. And who could undergo that? Men. Now it is baptism. And who gets to undergo baptism? Everyone. Which means the mark of being the children of God and the heirs of the kingdom and is equally distributed to everyone, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your socioeconomic status, and regardless of your gender. We are all children of God in Christ Jesus because of what Jesus has done. So there is no rank of priority or significance before God. Everyone is a child of God. So however we understand this, we have to put those next to each other. So... Um, when we take that into account and a few other things, we can first of all say what this absolutely does not mean. What this doesn't mean is that all women are to follow all men. This is specific instructions referring to the role of leadership in the church. So what that means is, women in the room, you have no responsibility just to submit to any man who walks up and gives you a direction. They don't have leadership in your life. So this is not a rule for governing life that men are in charge of the world. That's not what's happening here. This has a very limited application to the structure of the church. Secondly, it does not give men permission to dominate women. In fact, nowhere in the entire New Testament is the concept of power or authority ever given to one human being in the church over another. The idea of having the power to compel another person is completely absent from the New Testament. So any dominance or abuse that happens is a violation of God's design. It doesn't mean that women have no voice or place in ministry or that men can't learn from women. I regularly do. Every Sunday night, I gather together and learn from Cassie Rowland and Angela Spicer and Alexis Necessary and Jenny Shelby. The women in my community group open up the scriptures to me and help me learn and grow. And I've learned from incredible women teachers like Fleming Rutledge and Karen Jobes and Beth Moore who have been a huge blessing to me in their ministry. It's not saying that women can't speak and lead and teach in different ways. And it's not saying that women are less valuable, capable, or competent. What it is saying is that the role of pastoral leadership of the entire church is the responsibility of qualified men. Not just any man, but the ones that are qualified by the biblical standards we'll look at next week. And the official teaching ministry of the church is the responsibility of qualified men.
as a community trying to walk together through this. I want to give us a few next steps. First, it's okay if you feel really uncomfortable with this. It's okay if it kind of irritates you or if you completely disagree. And in fact, what I want to invite us to do, if that's the case, is to lean closer together in conversation rather than further away. To continue going to the scriptures together. To continue seeking God's authoritative word as a community. Hey, we have an incredible opportunity to, come to do that coming up very soon. Dr. Mark Yarbrough is the president of Dallas Seminary a great friend of this church, and he did his doctoral dissertation on 1 Timothy. And he's coming to fellowship to do a conference on this book for our church on November 6th. It's 35 bucks, that includes lunch. It's really just a gift to our community that he wants to come and serve us. I encourage you, he's gonna do some lectures on this book and open Q&A. I've got questions for him on this passage that I'm excited to learn from him. We have, that's one of the reasons we gather in community is so that we can have a dialogue about these issues and how we grow together. Let's lean into each other. And I wanna say that if any woman in this room has ever been the victim of a domineering, abusive male leadership, I wanna say I'm sorry. Our culture has a masculinity problem. but it's not just our culture. In fact, speaking of that Genesis story, when God showed up in the garden and he asked Adam, did you eat of the fruit? Adam knew what the consequence was. You know what it was? Death. And what did Adam say? She made me do it. Now, sometimes we laugh about that and that makes for a great marriage joke at a marriage conference. But think about the significance of that statement. Someone is going to die, and what is Adam's answer? Take her and not me. And throughout the pages of Scripture, we see that pattern play over and over again. Abraham's going down to Egypt, and he has a beautiful wife, and he's scared that Pharaoh's going to kill him so he can take her. So what does he say? He sex traffics his wife into Pharaoh's harem to save his own skin. David, as king, looks out and sees a married woman he sees as beautiful, and what does he say? I'm gonna use my power and authority to take her as my own, as a possession, and even have her husband killed to cover up my mistake. Over and over again, ever since humanity broke in the garden, there has been a pattern of male abusiveness in leadership. Until 2,000 years ago, a different kind of man was born. A man who had all authority under heaven and earth. And he said, I'm gonna show you how, to treat, how I treat my bride. And he took his position and laid down his life to die. So that the model for humanity, Jesus says, I'm gonna reframe how this should look. So that I call women to submit to this role, but I call whatever man is in this role to answer by laying down and dying. Not in a domineering, authoritative place of, of privilege, but in a serving role so that there should be no threat, but only seeing the gifts and the dignity of every woman in the body of Christ celebrated before the Lord. That's the picture we want to pursue together. 
We believe that when we try to do things God's way, that God will be glorified. And that's the picture of the household of God we wanna pursue together. Lord, we love you. We wanna come to you humbly, ready to follow, ready to be shepherded by your word. We pray that every man and woman in this room will experience in this community their unique dignity before you, their value, and that in the way we do interactions with each other, that we will lay down our lives in loving service for one another. For the joy of your people and the glory of your name, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Mosaic, we love you. Thanks for worshiping with us. Be blessed and have a great week.